Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more. Not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, my partner Ravinder is here in the studio with me, so Ravinder, say hello to everyone, share your special insight for the day, and please tell everyone how they can learn more about our show. Well, hello everyone, I'm so glad that you could join us. Today's show sounds particularly fascinating, actually. It's kind of hard to say that you have some amazing guests, but today's guest is, you know, today's subject matter is going to be great, so definitely uh, pay attention. Um, Yes, if you want to ask any questions or anything, we do have a Facebook page uh, dedicated just to the radio show, so just do a search for Provocative Enlightenment Radio, and you will find us... um, if you have, as I said, if you have any questions, you can post them right there. Um, and then if there's any information that is provided on the air, like special earls for additional information, then I will put them in there as well. All right. A letter I received this past week triggered this week's commentary. So I want to suggest in today's spotlight that it is neither unscientific nor irrational to hold spiritual beliefs. Indeed, I intend to go further and suggest that it may be the only rational way to live. To that end, let's examine the nature of reason. There are two general types of reason. Philosophically speaking, practical reason is the use of reason to decide how to act. It contrasts with theoretical reason, often called speculative reason, which is the use of reason to decide what to follow. Theoretical reason tries to assess the way things are. Practical reason decides how the world should be and what individuals should do. Do I go to the doctor or not? Do I propose marriage or not? It is through theoretical reasoning that science operates. We come to know the world as a result of observation and formalize this knowledge as a result of verification. As such, we understand everything from the theory of gravity to the Big Bang. It is worth noting that theoretical reasoning may include probable inferences by way of some explanations of our universe. As such, some generally accepted theories, like the explanation for earthquakes as due to tectonic plates shifting, are considered reasonable because they offer the best probable explanation. That said, let's look at what the Big Bang Theory asserts. At no time, there was singularity. Singularity divided itself, bang, and from that we have everything. However, despite its popularity, there are predictions that arise from the theory that have not borne out. 
Further, our problems with the Big Bang include that it violates the first law of thermodynamics and the law of entropy. It may be our best theory, but it is still only a theory. It is, in fact, what the brilliant mathematician Kurt Gödel termed a first principle. And as Gödel demonstrated, all first principles are inherently unprovable in and of themselves. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't test hypotheses. Another first principle might be similar to the Genesis story shared by many religions. So in the beginning, there was only God, and God divided itself, creating all that is. Since first principles are improvable, it would seem that using theoretical reasoning to interrogate them is somewhat futile. Oh, you can definitely interrogate predictions made by the first principle, don't get me wrong, and those who attack religion often do. But attacking the notion that God is omnipotent is quite different from attacking the first principle itself. Now let's think about practical reasoning for a moment. St. Thomas Aquinas considered the first principle of practical reason in his Summa Theologia to be good. Good is to be done and pursued, and evil is to be avoided. Let's think about good for a moment. I think we can all agree that to be happy and healthy is good. I think we'd all also agree that improved cognitive abilities is good, and so is the sense of well-being. Most of us would also agree that added longevity is good, for as the old story goes, what 99-year-old doesn't want to live to be 100? The fact is, people who believe in a higher power live longer, happier, and generally healthier lives. They are less likely to leave their spouse or play around, and they tend to find more purpose in their lives. So if we can agree that practical reasoning, how I should act, how I should behave, should seek good, then we must conclude, based on the evidence discussed, that reason dictates the reasonableness of holding to spiritual beliefs. Now contrast that to comments made by proponents of secularism who insist that religious spiritual beliefs are irrational. How can reason in and of itself be irrational if the reasoning is sound? If practical reasoning is the basis for my belief, then it is reason that supports my position. What's unreasonable about that? Ergo, we have both a pragmatic and reasoned basis for religious spiritual belief. Now that said, this is not to support dogma that clings to mutually exclusive propositions is unscientific and are teaches fear and harm. Indeed, religions or spiritual practices that in injure deride or in some other way sabotage the dignity of the human condition would not satisfy our prerequisite good. Those are my thoughts. What are yours, Ravinder? This is one of those subjects, isn't it, that has me going around in circles. Um, you know, I don't know. And that is that is the truth of it all. Um practical yeah i mean it is healthier to believe in the spiritual we all gain a great deal out of it um but yeah 
I'm, I don't know what to make of it. And you, you are fully aware of that because we've had these discussions so many times. And yeah, I get, yeah, I get tangled up. So maybe today's guest can enlighten me a bit more. All right. At least I'm honest. You have to, you have to give me that much. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> confused. Perhaps. I've just told no, the whole no, world no, no, I'm no, confused. No, I'm, I'm teasing you. <laughs> All right, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Brian Allen, and we discussed his work and book, Project Phenomena, Evaluating the Paranormal. Richard wrote, very interesting show, cool guest. Joe wrote, awesome show. Moving on, Ann wrote, Dear Eldon, thank you and your beautiful wife for helping millions of suffering people who are blessed because of your generosity. Love and blessings. John wrote, Good day, Ravinder. I have been following Intertalk for many years now. Eldon has done a terrific job in steering the company through many success stories, and his product stands by its very good rating. He is lucky to have you also looking after the company. I will order some more products in the coming future. Now, I'll bet you like that one, don't you, Ravinder? I do like that one, and you have done an amazing job, too. I, I don't know about I that. I mean, how long has it been now? 35 years? About that. So, yeah, I think Jackie it's cool. wrote, Dear Eldon and Ravinder, I love your articles. You post the neatest articles and educate me the most of any other people on earth. I love to learn, and you two are the best teachers. Thank you so much for all you do to brighten and educate my world. Well, thank you, Jackie. Ravinder, please tell our audience how they can subscribe to our free newsletter and or my blog. You simply go to... Uh, eldentaylor.com um, and you'll see the subscribe button right there. You'll get all the information automatically so it's really simple plus the fact when you subscribe you get a free gift as well so just go to eldentaylor.com Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today but we do love your feedback so please keep it coming. You can opine by sending me an email at eldon that's E-L-D-O-N at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your comments and suggestions. Now to today's show. One I've been really looking forward to, Know Thyself with Professor Mitchell Green. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Mitchell Green is Professor of Philosophy and Director of Graduate Studies at the University of Connecticut. He holds a BA from UC Berkeley, a Bachelor of Philosophy from Oxford University, and a PhD from the University of Pittsburgh. After earning his doctorate, he taught at the University of Virginia for 20 years before moving to the University of Connecticut in 2013. Professor Green is the author or co-author of five books, Engaging Philosophy, A Brief Introduction, Self-Expression, Moore's Paradox, The Philosophy of Language, and the subject of today's show, Know Thyself, The Value and Limits of Self-Knowledge. He has also published over 75 articles in academic journals or his chapters in scholarly books on topics in the philosophy of language, the philosophy of mind, and the philosophy of art. If you uh, Google him and check out his site at UConn, you'll see there are a lot of really interesting classes this man teaches. His book, Know Thyself, The Value and Limits of Self-Knowledge, is designed to be used in conjunction with the free Know Thyself MOOC, or Massive Open Online Course, hosted on Coursera Internet Platform. 
As an aside, by the way, there are some great courses on Coursera. I have taken several, including Professor Green's. I urge you to check them out, especially now where many of us are living with stay-at-home orders and wondering what to do with our lives. Okay, on that, let's get our guest in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Mitchell Green. Thanks very much. I appreciate your inviting me. Uh, it's indeed my pleasure. I very much enjoyed your course. Maybe we'll talk about that, but you heard today's spotlight. What are your yeah. thoughts on whether or not it's irrational to accept a spiritual side of life? As a philosopher trained in the so-called analytic tradition, my first impulse would be to break that question down into its various parts. And you were right in your initial comments to distinguish between practical rationality and theoretical rationality. So I'd say, similarly, the question about believing in a, in, in a greatest being, having a spiritual belief of some sort, is rational. We need to ask whether that rationality is due to practical or theoretical. The reason that you gave in favor of the theistic position that you were defending was that people tend to live longer, healthier lives by virtue of being theists. And that would be a practical reason. That would be a reason based on so-called practical rationality. And that might indeed be a reason. Would it be compelling? I don't know whether it would be compelling simply because one might say, well, compared to the general population, maybe it's true that if I were to become a theist and and accept a particular religious doctrine, I would live a healthier, longer life or something of the sort. But it might be that my own particular predilections would make me less well-off if I were finding myself requiring to follow the dictates of a particular religious creed. So I guess my thought is, depending upon how much adopting a religious or spiritual attitude affects your way of living, that will in turn determine the extent to which it makes your life go better or worse as the case may be. So I think rather than give you a sort of flat yes-no answer, I'd want to sort of qualify it in that way. And likewise, it seems to me on the level of theoretical rationality, one can ask, is there some basis at the level of just uh, theoretic rationality, finding evidence for the position itself that can be given. It's one thing to say that certain high-level theoretic, theoretical posits are very difficult to disprove. It's another thing to say that they're rationally compelling in any way. So I guess what I'd say is this is an area in which the theory is, the theory in question is so high-level, so abstract that we take a lot of detailed kind of unpacking and analysis of the components to figure out whether there's a strong case to be made in favor of one or the other. What I do generally when I teach this question to my students is try to get them to come out of what I consider to be a very common sort of dogmatic slumber and wake up from it and think about the considerations for or against. I don't ever try to change anybody's mind. I don't ever try to proselytize in favor of theism or against it, but just try to get my students to think about what reasons, if any, they're using in support of their views, and to see whether those reasons can be challenged, and if so, how. So, and I say in general, one of my sort of big take-home messages that I'd want to share is that rather than going for the question, is should I believe this or should I not, I tend to focus on the question, what are the considerations in favor, what are the considerations against, and that's in keeping with my general attitude that we gain a lot from the journey perhaps more more than we gain from the destination it's it's i love the answer the spotlight was prompted by a a friend of mine who actually uh, was accused of being stupid and irrational because they believe there's a life after death 
And uh, <laughs> so and, and I found that, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, I don't believe what you believe. I, mm-hmm. I get that all day long. But quite right. another to call somebody stupid and yeah. irrational, uh, sure. uh, you know. So at, at any rate. OK, I have a few yeah. questions. Go ahead. Sure. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention in this book that you mentioned, uh, Know Thyself, I talk about, for example, Rene Descartes who was one of the most powerful thinkers in the Western philosophical tradition and who gave some pretty powerful arguments for the possibility of existing after the full complete destruction of your body, the arguments that would seem to show that if he's right, then you can and very likely will continue to exist even after your body is destroyed. There are controversial aspects of Descartes' argument, but as I'm often pains to stress with my students it's a serious argument that no one could just laugh at no one could just dismiss out of hand and so likewise your friend could and i'm sorry if whoever said that to him did what they said you know put, put it as they did but i'd suggest you know there are some powerful considerations in favor of that friend's view whether that they're absolutely conclusive is another question but i think it would be a mistake to say anybody who's a theist is just totally. holding a silly silly view yeah I totally agree. Sorry. Loved your course. Okay. I got a, a couple of questions before we get into your book and into your course. Uh, you're, you know, teaching today is a, is a bit of a challenge. My, my, my youngest son is finishing at University of Washington computer engineering. He's online. Is, you know, he is just frustrated. He, he believes that, you know, his professors are lost. They don't know how to teach the courses. And I've I've spoken to two or three other professors, particularly in psychology, and they're they're stumbling around too. You've got a little bit of experience, but what is it like for you in this world of online uh, teaching? Yeah, well, I do have some experience teaching this online course. Also, in the past, for one of my courses, I did something called flipping. And so flipping means instead of giving a traditional lecture, when you come to the in-person class, you pre-record what would otherwise have been a traditional lecture. And then when you come to class, you discuss the recordings that you expect students to have, to have viewed. So I've tried various things, tried out various things. But I think still, in general, I would say teaching online is just less fun than teaching in person. The sort of platonic form, the ideal of pedagogy, at least in my career, has been being at a seminar room with maybe 12, 15 students sitting around a table where we're discussing very intensely, and of course face-to-face, a difficult philosophical question. that And that conversation goes over weeks and even months, and part of what I find so gratifying about that experience is that I'm able to see students' ideas develop, flourish, grow, and sometimes change as they see problems and limitations on the view that need to be rectified. And that's difficult with the online format. There's a little bit of, I guess I, I would say, the thing that I find most challenging about the online format is that the techniques we've been able to develop so far here at UConn and other media such as Coursera is that it makes feedback from the students difficult and a bit unnatural. And there's no substitute, at least in the current environment, for looking out over a classroom full of faces and see one of your students' eyebrow furrow as you say something uh, as part of your discussion and responding to that furrowed eyebrow by saying, you know, I think you might have a question, or maybe he's not understanding understanding something I said. Can you show me? Can you tell me a little more about what's bothering you? And the student will often respond, and I can be helpful and so forth. That's much more difficult. Not impossible, much more difficult in the on- online context. And so, um, what I guess I'd say is, it's definitely a second best, even in the experience of someone like myself who's, had a, who's done a fair bit of 
online pedagogy before. Um, but we're doing the best we can and hoping we get back to face-to-face normal within the next, I don't know, six to eight months, to put it conservatively. You know, and, and I'm, I, I, I hope that's the case, but I'm hearing otherwise from lots of sources. I mean, when COVID-19 is over, we emerge as America 2.0. Do you think we're going to have more distance learning, more online classes, or will we get back to normal? It's very difficult to say, but I think that there probably will be an uptick in online classes in general. Even if we do get back to a post-pandemic state, people will probably have thought of new and effective techniques for delivering content online. Uh, companies like Coursera and edX, as well as in-house, you know, uh, housed at particular universities, uh, programs will probably have have developed in various ways as well. And I do think there's a place for online education. For example, when I teach my MOOC, I love the fact that I've got students that are hundreds of miles away from the nearest college or university, but who, because they have an internet connection, can take my course. It's not as good for them as it would be if they were sitting in a traditional classroom, but it's better than what they have. And so I would say having online education available and having it develop and evolve, as it probably will in the next several months, is not itself a bad thing and probably provide more opportunities for more people across the globe, but I'm certainly in favor of that. But I do think that at least within the uh, first months after we get over the worst of the pandemic, it'll probably be the case that, for example, traditional large lectures where you've got two, three, or four hundred students in a lecture hall sitting next to each other, um, those might not be around for a while. And likewise, it might be the case that if we have in-person instruction in the fall, we'll have students even in regular-sized classrooms that hold 30 or 40 students. No one sits next to each other. People have to be spaced two or three apart. Um, Office hours have to be regulated in certain ways. I think we'll just have to be thoughtful about this. Fortunately, there's a lot of interest on the part of America's universities as well as universities across the world to make sure we get back to in-person instruction as soon as possible because there's a sort of bottom line issue as far as I can tell. Many students probably just won't want to come back to class in the fall semester if they're told that it's all going to be online. So there's going to be there's going to be lots of incentives that I think are likely to concentrate the minds of administrators who, in char- who are in charge of how and wh- how and what way classes return to some semblance of normalcy in the coming academic year. I've got, I guess my overall point then is that I'm, I'm guardedly optimistic. You, you know, I, I thought you did an outstanding job. Um, and, and, and I'm going to digress for a moment. Um, I can remember a friend of mine asking me uh, when I was attending undergraduate uh, school, Weber State University, said to me, why are you studying philosophy? Because I'm passionate about it. What do you want to be? You want to be a philosopher? Well, yeah, I don't know. And he said to me, what are you going to do? You know, wear a turtleneck and some jacket with a pipe? (laughs) You're never going to make any money. (laughs) But, But still to this day, and of course I ended up not doing that. My minor was philosophy, and I had more hours or as many hours in it as my major, but that's another point. It For me, it is a passion because it asks the important questions it asks the things that that people go through their lives and they they just some for whatever reason maybe Nietzsche Nietzsche has it right they just turn outward and pay too little attention to inward and as a result they become counterfeit what are your thoughts on that quickly 
Well, I think that that's on the right track. I mean, one of the reasons that I started thinking about this Know Thyself project starting something like 10 years ago now was that it seemed to me that academic philosophy can be, I don't know if you said you took a number of courses in philosophy, academic philosophy can often be very technical and very dry, and sometimes that's necessary, necessitated by the subject matter. Um, but I think philosophy, academic philosophy is always in danger of losing touch with the kinds of things that students and just the public generally care about or can be prompted to care about with a minimal, minimal amount of uh, 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 provocation. And so I thought it would be useful to try to think about making a, this Know Thyself project, the, the, inter, the importance and, and, and value of knowing ourselves, something that's relatively publicly assess, accessible. If you were to look at academic journals and saw articles on so-called self-knowledge, you'd probably not get past the first paragraph, not for lack of understanding, but for lack of, of wondering why people care about the sort of very specific, minute questions people are asking. So I thought I'd kind of throw open the question and sort of try to get people to see if I could provoke people to think about these big issues as you described as looking inward rather than looking outward. And I just found it was fun personally for me to do that and my students seemed to react well when I tried it out in the classroom but that's when I thought I'd try to make it something that would be globally accessible and it just goes back to Socrates question or remark that the unexamined life is not worth living now as I say in the Know Thyself book I argue in the Know Thyself book that, that might be an overstatement it's probably over overstating things to say that if you don't examine your life, if you don't engage in self-examination, your life is not worth living. That's a very strong, perhaps high-handed claim. But I think that one can recast Socrates' idea as, as the following, that the examined life makes one's life go better, engaging in certain types of systematic, careful, hopefully with others in the, in the company of others who are similarly, similarly curious, that kind of self-examination tends to make our lives go better. We're able to, to live more deeply, more rich lives. We can be more thoughtful and not just more knowledgeable, but also more wise, where wisdom is not just a matter of knowing a whole lot of information, but rather more a matter of knowing how to make good use of that information in such ways to live better lives, including being better people. And so, so my, my thought about this whole project was, let's try to take some aspects of the dry and dusty philosophy that, that has been studied for thousands of years in Western and non-Western traditions and see whether we can make it a little bit more accessible, approachable to the general public without making it cheap, without making it just kind of cheesy or anything of the sort. So that's what I've been trying to do. And I've very much enjoyed the project um, of just not only teaching this course to, to students, but also being engaged with the online world. Just the other day, I was looking over the discussion forums um, connected with the MOOC, with the Know Thyself MOOC, and I always just find myself so inspired and charmed by the comments that people make, which are people from all over the globe, all walks of life, and uh, they're engaging with each other about questions that are ancient as well as modern. It's just a lot of fun for me, and, and I feel like this is kind of like a modern-day agora, where the agora was the sort of marketplace area in ancient Athens and other city-states where people would hang out and schmooze and talk and debate and politic. We have an electronic version of that now, I think, with this, among other places, online discussion forum. And that's where some real philosophy happens, as far as I can tell. And I love it. It's a lot of fun. And I'd like to think that I'm, that I'm helping people do something that enhances their own life. Sounds great, and I know that you are, and I, you know, you might think that philosophy is not what you want, but when the time comes, as Totoyski says, and your Ivan Illig moment is there, it's <laughs> the only thing that matters. We have That's a break, right. Professor.
<laughs> We're speaking with Professor Mitchell Green about his work and book, Know Thyself. You can learn more about our guest and his books by visiting his website at mitchgreen.academia.edu. mitchgreen.academia.edu. Do go to his site. All right, please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. I want to welcome everybody back. We're chatting with Professor Mitchell Green about his work and book, Know Thyself. You can learn more about our guest and his book by visiting his website, at mitchgreenacademia.edu. All right. Every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, and yours, Professor, was Yoshida Brothers, the National Anthem, PRISM. Uh, unfortunately, we're unable to play it. Technical problem here. So tell us why it's important to you and how it informs us about who you are. Well, that's a tough question because it's one of those things that's difficult to articulate in words. But I guess I find that it's got a, it's got a, what should I put, a sort of driving rhythm, but a subtlety underneath it that is difficult to formulate. But um, how should I say, just something that it's almost like a serves as a good sort of theme song to various things that I do in the course of the day. And just feels right in a way that I don't know that I've got words for. <laughs> well, that's it. It's a good enough answer. All right, listen. You encourage people to know themselves. Yeah. Behavioral science today tends to suggest that in light of the impact of genetics, implicit learning models, automaticity, and so forth, that you know, all these things influence us in such a way that the proposition of somehow getting to know ourselves, well, that may not be so easy. Indeed, there are many scientists that have gone so far as to argue there's no such thing as free will. So I got a two-part question for you, sir. First, what are your thoughts on the matter of free will? And second, do you think it's practical and even possible to truly know yourself given our understanding of behavioral science today? Both excellent questions. Thank you for those. Um, so the question about freedom of will. Again, you know me enough now from what I've said in the last half hour to expect that I'm going to say that question as it's normally posed is probably too rough to be helpfully addressed. So I'd want to break it down. And the first step I'd have, first step I'd want to take in doing so is to say, let's be clear on what freedom of will is. When I read discussions of freedom of will in, for example, popular literature, when journalists talk about the findings in neuroscience, for example, I guess that's semi-popular literature, um, it seems to me free will is being understood as a kind of non-physical cause that might result in physical effects, such as you're doing things like flipping a switch or pulling a trigger or signing your name, but that it has a non-physical cause. And if free will is that, then one can understand why people are dubious of the question whether or not free will is really possible. But that conception of free will is, I think, tendentious, it's controversial, it's problematic, 
And if we think about not so much a philosophical conception of free will such as it is, but rather our ordinary everyday conception of, according to which free will is doing what you choose to do, or at least having a good shot at doing what you choose to do. And also, I'd want to put a further sort of counterfactual statement as another condition of my doing something freely. The kind of factual condition being what I'd call, I'd express as, had I chosen to do something different, I would have been able to do differently. Those ideas come together according, in such ways to suggest that, it seems to me, as I would argue that freedom of will, so construed, is compatible with even all the things that we know and are learning every new day about the relationship between what happens in the central nervous system, what happens in the muscles and fingers and on, and, and one's, you know, on, on tongue and toes and so forth. So I'm not at all convinced that there has to be a problem about free will, given so long as we give a proper understanding of that concept. So that's my answer to your first question. The second question about whether it's possible to know yourself, one of the, you know, part of the subtitle of the, of the book is, or the subtitle of the book is, The Value and Limits of Self-Knowledge. And I do suspect that self-knowledge is something that probably comes up against various upper... Uh, constraints, various kinds of, uh, kind of ceiling after a certain amount of, of digging. But I should stress that I don't think of self-knowledge as essentially a matter of introspection. I can introspect and ask whether or not the pain that I'm feeling in my back is the same pain that I was feeling two days ago, or whether or not the the smell I'm having is the same smell that I had recently, whether or not I'm feeling the same kind of sadness that I did in response to another event of a similar kind that happened to me. Those are forms of introspection, and they're one route to self-knowledge, but I suspect they're probably not the most important one. There's nothing wrong with, I would say, coming to know about yourself by taking a so-called third-person perspective as opposed to a first-person perspective. And that means that you probably can learn about yourself by various kinds of standard assessments and personality assessments might teach you things about yourself. In the book, I talk about self-distancing, trying to take a perspective on yourself from the point of view of a fly on the wall, from the point of view of a third person, and ask yourself how they would understand you, how they would perceive you. That can often be a revelation and sometimes a little bit disturbing, but it's worth trying to go through that process as well. In the book, I also talk about the so-called implicit association test as a way of determining whether you've got unconscious biases that might affect your behavior. Lots of discussion about things like racism and sexism these days in at least academic circles and also some policy and planning circles tend to focus on so-called implicit bias, where you can harbor implicit bias without being able to discern it by introspective, by introspective means. The only way to know that you're engaging in implicit bias is to see behavioral effects, whether or not you tend to, if you're a server in a restaurant, whether you tend to bring the bill at the end of the meal to the male diner as opposed to the female diner, for example. You might not be able to introspect and find that you think the man is more likely to, to be one responsible for paying than the woman. But if you behave that way, that shows that there might be an unconscious belief of yours. So my thought here is that behavioral science that you referenced in your remarks is one that I think we can learn from, that we can harness as ways of learning more about ourselves. So long as we give up, give up on the idea that self-knowledge, that the sort of golden road to self-knowledge is by means of introspection. In fact, the ancient Greeks didn't think much about introspection, as far as I can tell. They talked about knowing yourself, knowing themselves by means of sitting around with other 
uh, fellow Athenian citizens, for example, in debating the questions of the day. And I suspect that's one, I don't know if it's the only, but one other very good way of learning about yourself. So introspection, engaging in dialogue with other people whose opinions you respect, and also learning from the science that we know about causes and behavior are all equally uh, worthwhile ways of knowing about ourselves. And I'd say, let's use them all. And, and if we can use them all effectively, then I think we're going to make progress. Well, that is that guaranteed to allow us to get a complete and exhaustive understanding of ourselves? I doubt it, but I'm not sure that's something we should be after in the first place. Just, uh, just a bit of a follow-up question uh, <laughs> for clarity in my own mind. Mm-hmm. Evolutionary psychologists uh, talk about massive modularity. Uh, Steven Pinker calls it the computational model of the mind. But the, but the bottom line is, their argument is, our brains are not equipped to think about thinking. So, you know, my own background schooling suggests that the most important thing we can do is be mindful of our thoughts and think what we are, think about what we are thinking in the moment as we're thinking that. What are your thoughts on that? I think there's something to be said for the idea that our brains are not equipped, or at least not particularly well-equipped, to think about thinking. Where in the word thinking, I'd want to include not just cognitive states like beliefs, but also affective states like emotions, moods, things of the sort. So I would tend to agree that that higher-level, second-order types of cognition are challenging, and they're exhausting, and they're difficult to do for more than about 30 seconds at a time for most of us. But they can be done, and they one can get better at these things over time. And so it seems to me that thinking about thinking has a role to play, even if it's not something that, that comes to us naturally. It's a skill that we can acquire, just as someone who engages in, in meditation might find it very difficult at first, but it's a practice they can cultivate and get better at over time. In my classes, I always ask students to start classes with me with a brief meditative moment, and they often resist it at first, and by the end of the semester, they find themselves appreciating it, I think, and even at the beginning of the final exam, I typically have students asking me, can we have a meditative moment before we start a final exam, please? And I generally try to oblige. And so, so these things can be done even if they require some effort, some cultivation, some patience, and some discipline. Uh, so, so I would agree with the general thrust of the evolution of psychology point, the modularity point, and say, nevertheless, these are things that we can overcome. And with the techniques that we have, we've got a lot more tools at our disposal uh, to, to do precisely that. But I would also add that one way to learn about yourself is to, in one form or another, try to see yourself through the eyes of others, even if that's a difficult phenomenon, trying to understand why other people and what ways other people are reacting to you. Um, can often be revelatory of who you are in ways that are not always pretty, not always comfortable. Comfortable Sometimes they can be disturbing, but sometimes that discomfort is worthwhile in order to help yourself to become the kind of person you'd like to be. One of these days there's going to be an AI program and you're, you're going to interface with a computer and you're going to have conversations and maybe, yeah. you know, it's persona will be a female or a male or it'll, right. it'll work with a, a race and, and it will be able to give you the kind of appraisal that you're just suggesting, which right. otherwise is really difficult. Let's exactly. go to your books. Let's sure. go to your books, sir. You distinguish between knowledge and wisdom. You've mentioned this earlier. Uh, please elaborate on that distinction. 
yes, I take the distinction to be an important one and not terribly complex or profound or anything of the sort. That is, knowledge I would just characterize as having a lot of information, hopefully relatively well organized, so that I can have a great deal of knowledge about the causes of disease, for example. But uh, that doesn't necessarily make me wise about disease or anything else. Being wise about a subject matter requires knowing how to put such knowledge as you have to practical use so that you can be knowledgeable, I'm not sure if we got the right phrase here, um, and street foolish in a sense. You can know a lot of, have a lot of information at your t- fingertips and not make, not make practical use of it. By practical, I don't necessarily mean something that serves your own interests. I mean something that can just be useful for yourself or others. And so it seems to me one could have a lot of wisdom without being, sorry, a lot of knowledge without being wise. One could have wisdom and at the same time a relative short shortage of knowledge just depending upon the subject matter and where we are, in which case wisdom often requires us to be careful and not make any any overstrong generalizations or jump to any behavioral conclusions about what we should do without awaiting further further information. So knowledge and wisdom seem to be distinct. And if we're thinking about the role of self-knowledge in part, not because we just want to get a better theoretical understanding of ourselves, but because we're hoping that self-knowledge is going to help us enhance our lives, then the knowledge that is expressed by the idea of self-knowledge is only is, is only part of the story. We need to use that knowledge that we gain in order to act wisely. But th- doesn't that mean you can fractionate wisdom? Because let's let's say that you're a mechanic, uh, and so you have all the knowledge that's necessary to be a mechanic. And yes. according to what you said, wisdom would be the ability to use that knowledge. Well, you're the best mechanic going, so you're sure. very wise about mechanics, but that wouldn't mm-hmm. make you necessarily wise about anything else so definitely exactly these are fractionated a person could have incredibly good judgment about how to fix a car and very bad judgment about how to invest their their retirement funds or something of the sort or vice versa and so no doubt and indeed you know one of the reasons why i tend to shy away from big huge questions like you know what is wisdom uh, is is that i i think we can say something about it but a lot of the work gets done understanding these concepts when the rubber hits the road as it applies to particular subject areas about interpersonal relationships about long-term planning about how to fix things that we care about and and be be you know get along well with people that people that 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 we love and so forth those types of wisdom might be very different from one another depending on the subject matter so do you think a little bit of philosophy here that uh, Mm -hmm. the knowledge socrates is purported to have had by the writings of Plato could answer anything. Do you think that's really possible for a human being today? To have, to have, I'm not sure I'm quite grasping the question yet. Broad knowledge, knowledge, broad, broad wisdom. See, Socrates is portrayed by Plato as being ultimately wise about anything and everything. He couldn't be trapped, uh, you know, on trial, and he, he, he ultimately, uh, even arguably, was able to draw from a totally uneducated individual a very difficult problem that this person was able to solve, mathematical problem. Uh, but right. is that kind of wisdom available, do you think, honestly today? Or should we really constrain our ambitions 
and try to be wise about the things that are, you know, that we can be wise about and turn to the specialist for the things that we would recognize we're not wise about. Right. I tend to uh, uh, support the humility approach to these things as much as possible. That is to say, recognizing one's limitations is, generally speaking, a wise course rather than rather than being opinionated for the sake of the security that comes with having definite views on every subject matter. So, although Socrates himself denied that he had much knowledge of, about anything about the nature of justice, and truth, and knowledge, uh, and so forth, the right way to live, he might indeed have come across as having lived in a relatively wise way. And I think it's something that, that we can all aspire to, um, uh, but I would say aspiring to that is probably best achieved in a piecemeal way, and that would that piecemeal way would be instead of trying to become a wise person overall, let it go step by step. That is to say, try to become wise in your interpersonal dealings, and try to become wise in your you know, the way in which you take care of your own health, and so on and so forth. And each each subject matter might might require different ways of ways of behaving. But I think overall they can cons- conspire together. They can sort of come together in a suite of skills of living well that can make us achieve lives that are relatively satisfying. So I'd say it's fine to have that as, a, as an ideal, but at the same time, be modest. I, I want to I suggest that we be modest about the extent to which we can achieve that ideal, but, at the same, but, but not let that completely make us give up and, and, and decide the project is too, too overwhelming to be worthwhile. It's more of a one step in front of the other, one foot in front of the other kind of, kind of practical wisdom that I would advocate here. Just think about things you think about things you care about. Think about ways to make progress on them, and focus on, of course, getting yourself informed, getting that theoretical rationality into play. But also, the the ultimate aim of that, I think, would be to make good use of it to live a life that's worth living. That's the kind of life that you want to live. You know, many many years ago, I had the idea. Well, when I was a child and I first saw Knights of the Round Table, actually, I read that in the book. I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a round table? But I wouldn't want to have knights there. I'd bring in the brightest people, you know, from all time. I'd sit them at the table and I'd just be able to talk to them. And that that idea is when I grew up, you know, maybe 20 plus years ago now, became the basis for why I wanted to do a radio show. Okay. Sure. You're here, you're at my table, and I'm able to pick your mind, and, and, and we can have this conversation. If you had the table, what philosopher from the past would you most like to have sitting at that table with you? Uh, that's a difficult one. I've been thinking about that, and I, I don't know that I've got a definitive answer. I might change my mind after I think about it for another month. But right now, I suppose <laughs> I'd say the philosopher that I mentioned before would be Rene Descartes who I think was a fascinating figure, uh, mathematician, philosopher, and uh, the reasoning that he engaged in um, as he, as, as his, in his era, he was so important for bringing Western thinking out of, out of uh, over-dominance of, um, by the- theistically-minded uh, philosophy at his time. He moved, helped us move beyond the so-called scholastic uh, uh, framework. Um, I've got a lot of admiration for Descartes, and it would be just uh, a lot of fun to have a conversation with him and to try to pick his brains a little bit. Um, so I think that would be great. Rene Descartes. Hey, Descartes. I, I had two philosopher professors 
who just beat him up over and over again. Oh, yeah. His, oh, yeah. his, his right. syllogism. Sure. But you know, sure. I, I think I think he he is one of the greats. It is not very well understood. You know. Yeah. Uh, he goes off to war as a mercenary. He, he builds robotics. He's, you know, I think I I would agree with you. Is an incredible uh, mind. He comes up. Uh, he comes up with analytic geometry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no kidding. All right. Listen. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had Joel Weinberger on the show. He's one of the leading people in work on the unconscious today, researchers. In fact, his new book, The Unconscious, is a text, and uh, and we talked about that book. You have your own thoughts on how psychology is breathing new life into the idea of the unconscious. Um, do you think it's supporting Freudian concepts or not? And if so, why? Yeah, I think it's only supporting Freudian concepts in a very general way. So particular claims that psychoanalysis has made, influenced largely by Freud, but of course by many other people as well, such as the incredible power of sexuality and urges towards violence and so forth in the human unconscious mind. My sense is that those claims about the human unconscious mind have not been particularly well borne out by experimental evidence. Nevertheless, the, the research program uh, known as, sometimes under the rubric of the adaptive unconscious, that has many researchers working hard and to develop and articulate and also test the theory nowadays, um, seems to me to say a lot of things that are nevertheless very interesting and important for understanding ourselves. So it seems to me there is the, the sort of new unconscious that, that mostly researchers in psychology are, are understanding and getting a better, a better experimental support for is something that bears a kind of passing resemblance to the one that Freud posited, but no more than that so far as I can tell. Now, evidence might come in five years from now that changes that picture, but as so far as I can tell, there's just, a, there's just a very rough similarity. And I'd want to stress that there is experimental evidence that supports the positing of an unconscious in the human mind, but that unconscious is a very different kind of thing from the sort of thing that was traditionally positive, traditionally positive by psychoanalysis. And it's All not right. something you're likely to about by introspecting. That's a scary thing. I'm sorry, Professor. We're out of time. Uh, I might disagree with you about that a little bit, but that's a that's a subject for another time. Uh, sure. I do sincerely appreciate your work, uh, your book, and your willingness to share it all with us, sir. I hope you'll come back to the show. I've got 40 more questions sitting here in front of me. I'm unable to ask you. All right. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week. Same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.